And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome everybody, Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgil Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today. And it is Friday, and as always, we try to finish out the week strong. We've been uh, learning lots about the early church fathers, formal fallacies, informal fallacies, actually, um, and have some great guests, great discussion. Today, uh, we're going to, like I said, cross that finish line boldly. And continue on learning more about defending the, the faith and to help us do that. Actually, on the other side of the break, I should announce that we're going to have uh, Kenny Burchard with us. Kenny, as you know, was a former Protestant pastor. Um, actually, he's, uh, cha- uh, I believe he planted a church in California. And eventually, through his own study and prayer, came into the Catholic Church We had him on the show, oh, maybe two, three weeks ago, and we were talking about the sinner's prayer uh, evangelism and why it falls short. So we're going to take that conversation one step further, and we're going to talk about baptism, because baptism, how does that fit into the whole uh, sinner's prayer type, uh, just, you know, recognize you're a sinner, accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, and go join a Bible-believing church. How does that fit in? So Kenny Burchard is going to be um, coming on the program on the other side of the break. On this side of the break, as always, we're going to do our critical thinking skills. And since it's Friday, since uh, we do CrossFit training here, we're going to move from informal fallacies to talk about propaganda techniques. Today's propaganda technique is the lesser evil technique and i guess you can probably figure out where we're going with that one also we meet an early church father today's early church father we've had obscure early church fathers i think this is probably the most obscure of of the ones that we have especially when we have a couple of works from them but i would venture to say practically no one who's knows who he is and uh a little bit about his life it's marius victorianus Marius Victorianus. Not exactly a household name, but you know what? That's what makes these segments valuable, is you get to learn about these older uh, brothers in the faith that have fought the good fight before us. And we're going to learn a little bit about him, about his works. And before we do that, though, I want to welcome all of you to the show, beginning with our live stream audience. Hello, everybody. Also, I want to welcome all of you listening on radio around the country and also via podcasts around the world, either through our handy-dandy phone app or through our flagship website, which is virginmostpowerfulradio.org. And uh, by the way, uh, this is important. Uh, you want to jump on virginmostpowerfulradio.org. Why? Because tomorrow, September 18th, Saturday, uh, right there in Covina, California, there's going to be the 2021 Women's Conference that's going to focus on true devotion to St. Joseph. And uh, all you have to do is jump on the website, virginmostpowerfulradio.org, 
And uh, you'll see the banner. Click on the banner. You'll get all the information about the speakers, the schedule, the topics, and how you can participate in this remarkable event. And like I said, if you're going to be a defender of the faith, you got to be fortified. You got to be forearmed. You need to uh, avail yourself of whatever resources you have to grow closer to the Lord, closer to his saints, to be a more worthy instrument for the Lord to use to help explain and defend the faith. And uh, that's the beautiful thing about Virgin Most Powerful Radio is it provides these resources uh, nonstop, it seems. There's always great events that Terry Barber is, uh, you know, <laughs> is putting together in the hopper. So mark your calendars. Get ready for this tomorrow, Saturday, September 18th, True Devotion to St. Joseph Women's Conference. Uh, you can check it out. And like I said, all the details are right there on virginmostpowerfulradio.org. And uh, don't miss it, folks. Don't miss that opportunity. All right, so uh, let's see. If you have a question for Kenny, you can always give us a call toll-free at 888-526-2151. That is 888-526-2151. Or if you want to send me an email, the official Dojo mailbox, this is the way to get directly in touch with me, the sensei, is through questions at handsonapologetics.com. Very, very easy email address to remember because it's the title of the show.com, and just make sure you put questions at. And that comes directly into my inbox, and I do receive them, I do read them. I try to reply as quickly as I possibly can, although sometimes I uh, it might take a little while, but I do get back to you. And I just love hearing from all of you. And uh, by the way, if you have any suggestions for people you'd like to see on the show, People who are doing a bang-up job on social media or have some sort of ministry that involves explaining, defending the faith, let me know. You know, I the, the sensei can't be everywhere, you know. And I love, especially for those who are just starting out in ministry, uh, my heart goes out to them because I started out in ministry uh, long decades ago when really modern Catholic apologetic movement was just getting off the ground. And it was people like Carl Keating and Terry Barber who was able to give me a, you know, a hand to get the, my ministry up and going and, and help people uh, know about it. You know, that did a great job. I mean, it helped me tremendously. So now that uh, I have this show, I, I love to get people who are just starting out to uh, introduce them to you the public, and also to let you know that there are some great, great people, great resources out there that you can tap into as well in order to uh, bring all things into subjection to Christ. All right, let's move to our Finding the Fallacy for today, which is a propaganda technique. Um, Today's propaganda technique is the lesser evil technique. And I think you can kind of guess from the name, how the technique works it's really the full name is the lesser of two evils technique which tries to convince us that an idea or proposal uh, is right by presenting it as the least offensive option okay so it's a way for you to accept something because it will imply that it's either this idea or something else the something else is horrible or offensive or not acceptable, and essentially leaving this to be the only viable option on the table. 
The technique is often implemented by to convince people of the need to sacrifice or to justify difficult decisions. Um, and the problem with this particular technique of the lesser of two evils is that it assumes that there are only two options possible and that other options or paths uh, don't exist. So it also kind of frames the argument into an either A or B type situation. And then they say B is so odious and offensive that really A is the only option. And I think um, all things being uh, all things being equal, and uh, basically, if um, those are the only two options available, of course, you would want to try to minimize damage. But on the other hand, you know, there's there's other bigger uh, questions to be raised, like is option A moral, or is it just? Or is it good? Or is it something that we ought to do that would promote virtue? You know, there's lots of other questions at the, on the table rather than whether some aspect of the other alternative is bad. Uh, so anyway, uh, I, this is used quite a bit, uh, especially in politics, um, where they reduce things to two possible options and then uh, try to make one option look so odious that you have no choice but to accept the other option. Um, so once the the thing about propaganda techniques, folks, and you've heard me say this on the show, once you realize it's being used on you, it's magic disappears. It has no uh, force. In fact, many times once you realize somebody's using a technique, uh, often if you're like me, I mean, it's uh, you suddenly become averse to what they're trying to argue. So just be aware of this. It is out there. It is being used. And um it's being used effectively too. the lesser of two evils propaganda technique. All right. So let's move on to meet our early church father for today was Marius Victorianus. Marius Victorianus was born in Africa about the year 300 AD. He distinguished himself in the secular state as an order in Rome and was converted to the faith about the year 355 AD. Jerome remarks concerning his doctrinal writings that they are very obscure and can be understood only by the learned. And his commentaries on the epistles, uh, that they prove, quote, that the learned order can never have studied theology, unquote. The date of his death is unknown. So basically, if you look him up in, uh, say, Jurgen's Faith, Early Fathers, they'll just say they flourished around the year 355. We really can't pin it down any more than that. Uh, one of his works that's probably he's best known for is Against Arius. And this is in response to a friend of his who was an Arian called Candidus, in which Candidus uh, translated into Latin a letter from Arius himself to Eusebius and another of the same Eusebius to Paulinus of Tyre. And so his work is uh, divided into four parts, which respond to that, in which he uh, treats and defends the tr Trinitarian understanding of uh, Christianity, and specifically the, tome, the term homoousius, or same substance as the Father. That is our early church father for today, Marius Victorianus. Coming up next, we're going to be talking about baptism with uh, Kenny Burchard. So stay tuned.
Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, Hands-On Apologetics. And if you've been following this show, you know that uh, we've had Kenny on before where we talked about sinners, prayer, evangelism. And we're going to take that conversation one step further and talk about baptism. And to help us do that, of course, we have Kenny Burchard with us, who uh, served in numerous Protestant churches. He was also the founder and senior pastor of a Protestant Pentecostal church in Central California from 2001 to 2013. Received the MA in New Testament from Mennonite Brethren Biblical Seminary. And he and his family entered into communion with the Catholic Church in April of 2019. He's the curator and blogger of Faith Seeking Understanding at KennyBurchard.com, where he dedicates his sharing his biblical insights, theological insights, as a follower of Christ in the Catholic Church. And Kenny, welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics. Gary, thank you so much. Uh, always a joy to be here. Can you hear me okay? Oh yes, you're coming in loud okay. and clear. Excellent. Terrific, terrific. Thank you so much. Hey, what a what a joy to be back with you again. Good to see you. Thanks so yes, much. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, especially with this topic, it, we had a really fascinating conversation a few weeks ago yep. about sinner's prayer evangelism. And uh, maybe it's good maybe to catch people up to speed maybe if they missed that episode so we can sure. transition into baptism. Yeah, that's a great idea. Uh, and, you know, that all it all goes back to something that I said that the first time that we met together and, and talked about my own journey of faith, you know, as a, as a Christian. And I mentioned saying a prayer, you know, on the hood of my car and and that kind of being the moment where I look back and see this transformation of my life kind of began with with that prayer. And um and as I spent, you know, over 30 years in evan evangelical American Protestantism, uh, that approach to bringing somebody into faith was pretty much how we, we all did it. We said, uh, you know, you need to pray and you need to say a sinner's prayer. And when someone would do this, whether it was, you know, at a kitchen table or in a mass ev evangelistic uh, campaign or at the end of a church service, uh, they would come forward and, and say a prayer, something like, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you died for my sins, and uh, I want you to save me and forgive me, and, and so I want to go to heaven when I die, things like this. Jesus, come into my life. Amen. What we would tell people was, okay, there you go. Now you're a Christian. You know, congratulations. And we would, you know, <laughs> whatever your tradition is, <laughs> however right. passively or excitedly you re would respond to that in our church, we would cheer for people, you know, yay, you're you're a Christian now, you know. And, um, and then depending on the particular strand of Christianity that you find yourself in when you do that sinner's prayer, you may or may not be encouraged to be baptized. Um, now, in our church, um, partly be because of things that I learned when I was younger, uh, as a younger Christian, we would always encourage people to be baptized. You know, after they after they prayed, um, but but maybe for different reasons than <laughs> I came to understand uh, in the Catholic Church's teaching. 
But we, you know, last time when you and I got together, we talked about whether or not sinner's prayer evangelism, as I, I refer to it, uh, that people were becoming Christians in the early church. And I'm sorry if I'm a little glitchy here. I think I might be. Um, but is sinner's prayer evangelism or was sinner's prayer evangelism the way the earliest Christians were bringing people into the Christian faith? And what I said last time we were together was no. Um, that's, that is just not what you find uh, I, I don't think it's what you find in the Bible, um, although uh, these different ideas are said to be based on the Bible, but I don't think it's what you find in the Bible, and I certainly, as we, I hope we can talk about today, can't find that idea anywhere in the earliest um, Christian writings, especially um, the earliest church fathers, you know, before the Nicene Council, for instance. There's just no evidence at all of anything like say a prayer to accept Jesus and you can be assured that you'll go to heaven when you die. And, um, but I, I personally, you know, as a pastor, uh, would often end church services with something like a sinner's prayer invitation. You know, if you want to accept Jesus, say this prayer after me, we would say the prayer. And then I would tell people that they were Christians <laughs> after that. Well, Long before I became a Catholic, I began to doubt um, the validity of that approach, which, which doesn't mean that I don't think God works in it or that God wasn't at work in those kinds of things. I think, I think he is and I think he was. That really isn't the question. The question is, is this the way, you know, biblically speaking and in terms of what you see in church history? Is this the way we ought to be bringing people into the Christian faith? And I became convinced long before I became a Catholic that that was not the way to do it. And in fact, before I ever became a Catholic, I was convinced that baptism was and is the sacrament of initiation into the Christian faith. Um, and interestingly, I may maybe say another thing on the front end here, because you mentioned, I think you mentioned at the, in the intro that my seminary training was at the Mennonite Brethren Biblical Seminary in Central California. The Mennonites, uh, I was trained by them. I, I wasn't pastoring in a, in a Mennonite church at all, but that's where I happened to go to seminary. Well, the Mennonites are the Anabaptists. People who are listening may have heard of Anabaptists and uh, A-N-A on the front of that is the Greek pre prefix for the English re, re-baptize. <laughs> yeah. And so the re-baptizers. And um, so I was trained in seminary by the re-baptizers who didn't believe in infant baptism. They believed that only believers who profess a faith in Jesus have valid baptisms. So maybe all of that to say, I had all kinds of ideas about baptism flying at me and that I was using and, and maybe integrating into my own approach to ministry. None of them in the early years involved the Catholic understanding of baptism, which is that it is the means by which a person 
is regenerated and brought into the covenant family of God through Jesus. Baptism is the way that that happens. Maybe I, I can pause there for, yeah, for a second. Yeah, <laughs> actually, yeah, I have a question because uh, you're right. With the Mennonites, uh, they, they were the Anabaptist. And uh, Pentecostal church, you were a pastor of a Pentecostal church. Do they Are they Baptistic or do they, they believe that uh, regeneration happens? Or, or What can you tell us about that? Yeah, most in within Pentecostalism, which flows out of, you know, often flows out of Wesleyanism, Arminianism, um, and, and, you know, the, the conversionist uh, approaches to salvation. Um, uh, Pentecostals are not, that I understand, not any denomination within Pentecostalism embraces baptismal regeneration. Okay. Uh, I, I don't, I can't think of one that, that would say that being baptized is the thing that brings you into, you know, the covenant family of God that brings you into salvation. So within, within Pentecostalism, I think you would find that, well, what does baptism accomplish? If, if we started with that question to a Pentecostal, what you would tend to get is the testimonial answer. Uh, there's different ways that, you know, that Protestant evangelicals understand what's going on at baptism. And I think what, what I would have said, you know, early as a Pentecostal is, well, you're bearing testimony to something supernatural that happened before you were baptized. So to use myself as an example, going back to the hood of my car, you know, I, I said a sinner's prayer in July of uh, 1986, and then got baptized in July of 1987, one year later. Um, and that's that's a whole other discussion, because I wasn't allowed to get baptized by my family, <laughs> um, or I would have much earlier. But what, what my friends at the Vineyard Church would have told me I was doing was giving a testimony to my faith in Jesus that I had uh, that had happened when I said my prayer. So let's call it the testimonial um, understanding of baptism. Really, I'm bearing witness to this inner work that's happening to me. I'm doing it, mm -hmm. if, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that's very helpful. I know as Catholics, we're so used to, you know, our catechesis with sacraments and that, that often right. when they're exposed to, like, a baptistic understanding of it, that it's merely a sign of something that has already occurred. It, it right. kind of it's a little hard to grasp, but uh, yeah. So it makes perfect sense. But you know, I always wondered if that's true. Then is it really necessary? You know, do you really need to proclaim publicly that of something that has already occurred? Right, and you know, and that's kind of what you, we, we talked a little bit about this last time we were together that um, that understanding of baptism, that it's a testimonial, then there's, a, there's an implicit theology in that, um, that understanding. And the implicit, the implicit theology is that it isn't necessary. Um, it's a really good idea, and probably you should, you know, if you want to be a good Christian. Um, and look, look, here's examples in the Bible. We might even tell people, look, Jesus was baptized. They got baptized in the book of Acts. There's lots of instances of baptism in Acts. 
So it's a really good idea. You know, it's part of the Great Commission. Somehow um, you should do it. But then when you really, you know, like when you press the issue, when you press the issue and you say, okay, is it necessary? Must I do it to be saved? I think almost any, um, I think a majority of Protestant evangelicals, especially Pentecostals, Baptists, and non-denominational Christians would say, um, no, it's not. It's not at all. Um, it's it's not at all necessary. Sorry, someone just, just came in uh, there. No problem. Um, it, it's not at all necessary. Um, it's... It's just you giving a testimony um, to this faith that you you have come to embrace. And so now in practical terms, you know, let's go back to me being a pastor. I had, I can't even count how many people come across my path in churches that I was pastoring where I would say, have you been baptized? And they would say, no, but I'm a Christian. And, um, you know, I think to Catholic ears, <laughs> that's going to yeah. sound really different. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we are chatting with uh, Kenny Burchard about baptism. Uh, as you can tell, there's a lot to talk about. More to come on the other side of the break. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Kenny Burchard about uh, baptism. And, uh, yeah, uh, well, thank you for answering. I hope I didn't uh, derail your line of thought. But uh, you never know uh, people, different denominations often have different shades of understanding. And uh, so thank you for clarifying uh, the, the question about Pentecostal churches. Oh, Kenny, I think you're on mute. Uh, just double check. I am. Okay, I got you. All right. I think I'm there. <laughs> are we? Are we back? <laughs> we are back. All right. I heard you. Yeah, I and I think you know what I what I shared there, Gary. I think if you talk to the average Joe evangelical Protestant, you know, going to average church USA, and you ask them. Uh, what they think about baptism, they're going to say a lot of the same stuff that I did, that it's really a testimonial, it's something that you you do after you really, quote, get saved. Um, it, it doesn't save you. It's, it's something that you're doing to, in a sense, publicly witness about this other thing that's happened already, uh, supernaturally and possibly invisibly. Uh, and you're you're just making it visible with your with your baptism, and in that sense, it's you know it's it's not seen as something that's sacramental, in that it accomplishes something. It's more thought of as an ordinance, something that you perform um, out of duty, uh, rather than something that's done in order to bring about some end, in order to accomplish something. Um, or some, it's not seen in that way, you know, within within Protestant evangelicalism, and um, and so you know, I I came to reject uh, those ideas um, in some ways because of re, you know reading scripture and reengaging scripture in, in different ways uh, when I was a little younger, but also 
listening to the witness of the early church, you know, and one of the things we we do is, as you probably have heard a thousand times from converts, is, you know, we have the Bible and then we read the Bible, we find the church fathers and we we find ourselves reading the Bible through their eyes. Hmm. And we discover that we haven't put things together in the way that the earliest Christians post uh, apostolic, you know, the post first disciples. We don't, we haven't put things together the way that that they did. And so, why is that? Yeah, right. <laughs> and, you know, for me, the answer is we we wandered away from uh, a true understanding of what all these things mean, and uh, especially in baptism and what it means to become a Christian. And uh, now, not all, as you know, not all um, non-Catholic denominations or, you know, Christian movements um, would agree with everything I just said. Some of them are firmly what they would call baptismal regenerationists. You know, they really do believe that uh, the same way the Catholic Church believes that baptism, as Peter says in his letter, now saves you, <laughs> you know, yeah. baptism saves you, you know, so that so there there are non-Catholics who believe that. But I would say most don't. Most don't. Um, you know, maybe another another helpful thing, um, and we talked a little bit about this last time too, is sorting through. You know, how how did we get there? How did we get to this um, understanding of baptism that isn't Catholic? And I would, you know, jokingly but also seriously say, therefore, isn't biblical. <laughs> isn't Catholic and therefore isn't biblical. Ha ha. But seriously. Um, and I think it's because, uh, I think one of the big reasons is because baptism is understood to be a work mm -hmm. by many, um, Protestant evangelicals. It's, it's something that you do. And again, we, we talked a little bit about this last time. I think that's why we want to unpack it. So, so if I'm a pastor and I'm talking to this brand new person who just prayed the sinner's prayer, and he says, now, do I have to get baptized in order to be saved? I have, you know, in my theological matrix there, I have to be really careful not to say anything to him that makes it sound like he has to now earn his salvation through carrying out some work of righteousness. Um, so, uh, yeah, you ought to be baptized. But, but, but what I think many Protestant evangelicals are afraid to do to do is is embrace this Catholic understanding and this biblical understanding of baptism, because that would make baptism a work. It would make it a work of righteousness, an action by the person um, that results in their salvation. Well, I think this is, you know, going digging into Scripture, um, it isn't presented that way in Scripture, and it's never presented that way in the earliest church writings. What, how, the way that it's presented is that baptism is not a work that you do. Rather, it is a sacrament, a grace that you receive. It's a gift that you receive. Um, it's the church does the baptism. Yeah, so right. even though the person is getting baptized, right? Like I got baptized or I was baptized. Um, inside of that little phrase is some passive language. 
And that passive language is actually found in the Greek, many of the Greek texts that talk about baptism. I mean, the first one in the, the book of Acts where Peter stands up and, and, then, and they say, what should we do? Oh, there's a do question. What should I do? Um, well, he says, repent and uh, I believe the Greek word is baptisteto, T-H-E-T-O. On the end of that is a passive, uh, is a passive tense that requires you to translate that be baptized or receive baptism or, or this way, have baptism done to you. <laughs> <laughs> Repent right. and have baptism done to you. And then this other little phrase, for the remission of sins and receive, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, the, the language there indicates that it's something that the person receives from the church. And so it isn't, you know, biblically, textually, theologically, or practically ever presented as a work that you do. Rather, it's presented as a grace that the church does to and for you. And we talked a little bit about this too last time. That in, in uh, this last Sunday, we had baptisms at our at our uh, parish, and our priest asked uh, the folks being baptized, "What do you ask for from God's church?" And they said, "Baptism." And so you're asking for it, but you're not doing it. It's being done for you and to you. And boy, I hope it's not too loud on, on your side, what you hear on my side, but there's someone outside mowing the lawn, interestingly. <laughs> hey, so, I I, when I started this program, it was like every every uh, program we had, someone was mowing the lawn or something. It was terrible. <laughs> totally well, good. No, you're coming in fine. But, so, but this idea, right? I mean, have, yeah. have you heard that, Gary, that... that um, you know, well, we can't tell people they have to get baptized because then they're then they're we're telling them they're saved by works. You know. And oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's the primary example, and of course, no one ever baptizes themselves, right? It's right. Always something done to you. Exactly. It's done. It's done to you, and it's done for you by the church, yeah. and of course it is because you know salvation is a free gift. It's a gift of grace. And it, it's all grace. It's all grace. Um, if anything, you know, baptism is my cooperation with God's grace. It's me letting, uh, allowing the church to do what it does for people that uh, want to come into the faith or who are being brought into the faith as, as children. But, um, but it isn't something that I do. And I think that that just that one piece has created so much of the confusion uh, that you that you find, you know, in the traditions that are afraid to encourage people to be baptized. They don't want to tell them to do it because they're afraid they're going to, you know, lead them into some kind of works righteousness. Um, so I think, you know, like the way that I've talked to a lot of people about it is you're not doing it. It's being done for you. It's being done to you. And, uh, yeah. you know, God is God is doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot like faith, isn't it? Uh, the grace of faith, the gift of faith. That's something that you kind of allow God to have his way that you come to believe. It's not something you do per se. It's not like you uh, generate this belief and pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps. It's a gift. Right. Right. 
um, and maybe and we may be able to talk about you know maybe unpack some of the texts and the early church writings on the other side of the hour here. But yeah, you know, for me, once I started or the other side of the break, I should say, uh, once I started seeing you know just linguistically, I joke with my son and say grammar is one of the big reasons I believe certain things <laughs> in the Bible. <laughs> well, well, look at the grammar, you know. Uh, yeah. How often, you know, just looking at these texts uh, about baptism, they're not about they're not about um, me doing something. They're about the church doing something for me as a means of bringing me into God's covenant. And you know, uh, oftentimes it's paralleled with with circumcision in the Old Testament. This is something that. Uh, and that could be maybe a future discussion on on infant baptism specifically, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. but but this is something that is done um, to you, something that you receive that is a is a gift, and uh, and baptism is always in the New Testament presented as the way in which someone comes into the Christian faith, and when Jesus is talking, you know, when he's uh, commissioning. The, the first disciples in the in the gospel of Matthew, he's saying, go into all the world, you know, disciple the nations, going into the all, all the world, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So baptism is that way that they're brought into the faith. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and that's, that's a great example of how, you're right, if it's <clears throat> sinner prayer evangelism, if that's really the whole gospel, uh, the Great Commission doesn't make a lot of sense why that would be a primary goal is to baptize. But uh, I hear the music coming up. We're chatting with uh, Kenny Burchard about baptism. More to come on the other side of the break. You're listening to Hands on Apologetics. Now, back to Hands on Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-on Apologetics. We're chatting with Kenny Burchard about baptism. And, man, Kenny, uh, your journey of faith, is that was a huge, I imagine, a huge mountain to climb. This whole idea from coming from baptism is merely symbolic to actually a, a sacrament that confers grace. And, and you mentioned uh, in the last segment how the early church fathers uh, was a big part of that story of conversion. Yes. Uh, can you hear me, by the way? Are you guys okay? Oh, yeah. Yeah, everything's fine. I apologize for the uh, the uh, guy trimming outside. I'm, I'm in a boardroom here outside of a building. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect place to land. But, yeah, um, yes, the church fathers um, were, were instrumental in this because, you know, one of the things that you have as a, as a, as a Protestant evangelical, you have your Bible. And, and then you're, you're supposed to figure it out, right? What, what does all this mean? And you run around chasing um, conclusions, chasing theological understandings and getting them from, from wherever you can. And one of the questions that I had to ask was, well, how did the people who discipled the earliest Christians understand this? And how did they talk about it when they wrote about it? And, and there's so much great um, material available to us. It's all free, you know, on the internet. You can read everything that that exists from the early church fathers uh, at no cost, you know, <laughs> online. 
And right. you go back to the earliest stuff. You know, I, I have a few things open in front of me here. Uh, one of the earliest is, is St. Ignatius of, of Antioch, who lives from AD 30 to about 105. And Ignatius, just read a couple of quotes here that were helpful to me, you know, and maybe for someone who might be listening who's never read the Church Fathers before, uh, who might be like me, a Pentecostal preacher or a pastor. But St. Ignatius, uh, in his epistle uh, to the Trallians, says, Jesus Christ, who died for us, in order that by believing in his death, ye may, by baptism, be made partakers of his resurrection. So what Ignatius does there is different from what I learned how to do as a Protestant. I learned how to separate things, one thing from another, and try to pick which one, if I have to choose between them, I'm going to grab onto. Do I choose? Uh, do I choose believing, or do I choose baptism? Well, I'm going to I'm going to choose believing. Well, Ignatius doesn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> Ignatius says uh, that ye may by baptism, uh, sorry, believing in his death, by baptism be made a partaker. So, in other words, even in the way that he talks about the relationship between faith and baptism, the very words that he chooses integrate the two things rather than disassociating and dislocating them from one another. He integrates them. It's a very Catholic thing to do, to link things up and, and to make them interdependent, and they are. And then he, he says in his epistle to the Philippians, there is one baptism which is administered that we should have fellowship with the death of the Lord. So again, he's doing the same thing. He's, he's not uh, separating faith from baptism and making one possible to the exclusion of the other. And see, I was never conscious of the fact that I was doing this as a Protestant. It was only after I started um, becoming a Catholic and then learning how Catholics were thinking I began to detect in myself, and then now I have radar for it when I'm talking to just about anybody, but I began to detect in myself kind of this, this um, necessity of polarity, I guess, that things have to be set in opposition to each other, and then you have to choose between one of them. Is it faith or works? Is it believe or baptize? You know, is it is it grace or is it what I do? It's it's there's always this either or. Well, the early church fathers never did that. They just saw them as integral and related. And then you know, going forward to uh, Justin Martyr, who um, lived you know 110 to 165 A.D., he has a whole section uh, on Christian baptism in his uh, apologies. And he talks about how and why and what they would do in Christian baptism. And he says, uh, in the section on Christian baptism, he says, they are brought by us where there is water and are regenerated in the same manner in which we ourselves were regenerated. For in the name of God, the Father and the Lord of the universe and our Savior, Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit, then they receive the washing with water for Christ also said, except ye be born again, ye shall not enter in the kingdom of heaven. So there's, you know, Justin Martyr saying, when we baptize people, 
that baptism saves them, just like it saved us. Uh, and then he, he draws a straight line between baptism and what Jesus says in John's gospel, you must be born again. Well, that, that kind of create that's like a first breadcrumb, right? It's the, the yeah. born again breadcrumb that you yeah. find in you know the early church fathers. Well, what did they think born again means? Because I was taught that born again is what happens when I say a prayer. Well, these guys didn't think that. They thought born again was what happens when you receive baptism. And over and over and over again. So that little that the the Justin Martyr born again breadcrumb. I follow that through all the writings of the early church fathers and discover over and over again when they use the language of being born again, it's always connected to baptism every time. And uh, you just can't get away from it. So what was going through your mind as you're following these breadcrumbs and seeing how one early father after another seems to you know get it wrong on, in regards to baptism? Well, it creates kind of a cognitive dissonance, and you and you you find yourself having conversations with yourself and other people, like, <laughs> well, well, were they right, or am I right, or were the people who discipled me right, or do these early Christians really know anything? Maybe we know more than they did. Um, like you're having all of these in, yeah. internal conflicts with yourself. Uh, maybe we're smarter than them. Maybe we figured it out. Maybe maybe they're um, the earliness of their understanding was actually their blind spot. And now, you know, we've just been thinking about it so long that we actually think about it better than they did, which I think is a huge mistake, but I think it's it's one that's made, you know, regularly. And so what I had to do <laughs> is change my orientation to the, to the discussion and say, well, maybe they were right. Maybe, because, because you know, just looking at Scripture, this is a valid reading of Scripture. A valid reading of Scripture is that, you know, uh, Peter says it in his epistle, baptism which now saves you. Okay, you can lay that over the, the baptism texts as a lens and kind of pull them up through it and read those texts through the lens of, of salvation and come up with a fine, perfectly reasonable reading. And because I continued to see them reading it that way, what I had to say was, I have to read it that way too. And now, you know, not only in my practice as a pastor, you know, in my in our congregation, um, I have to I have to embrace this. But it, it came to the point where I said I have to attach myself to the church that has always believed this. And you know, you heard what I said at the be beginning, Gary. Uh, Pentecostals don't believe in baptismal regeneration. So this, this is one of those things where it's like you can't stay inside of this tradition that rejects this theology, right, and try to practice it. You're a rock in the shoe, you know. You're, you're, a, you're a sliver in the heel of this thing now. You're out of place, you know. Yeah, so. it, yeah it's, it's one of those things that, uh, that, you know, it goes against the whole system of thought, right? I mean, it's, right. it's that fundamental that if baptism actually does something, then that totally changes your whole works versus faith. All those dichotomies that you mentioned that uh, you were, that's how you view things. Right. Yeah. You know, um, we, we both, we're, we're both familiar with Marcus Grodi's verses I've never seen before or verses I'd never seen before. 
And there's one at the end of the book of Acts that really helped me. Um, and that's uh, Acts chapter uh, 22, I believe it is. I'm, I'm, I'm flipping over there right now in Acts chapter um, 22, verse 16. Uh, this is the, the um, conversion of Saul of Tarsus when Ananias comes to him and tells him that, you know, God wants to, to save him, basically. And, and it's so interesting what he does here in verse 16. He says, what, basically, what are you waiting for in verse 16? Rise up. This is so interesting. Rise up. Be baptized. There's that passive. Have, have baptism done to you. And wash away your sins, invoking his name. This is such an interesting thing for Ananias to say and for for Saul, or who later became Paul, to record. Rise up, turn away from your sins, be baptized, and then he ends it with calling on his name. And the reason I say that's a verse I'd never seen before is because of what I said earlier about the either-or choice that you have to make. Remember in Romans where he where he says, you know, call on the name of the Lord, you know, and you'll be saved. Um, and you have a Protestant that will say, see, there's nothing there about baptism. You just, you just say a prayer. You call on the name of the Lord, and the Lord will save you. Well, the, the same guy who wrote the same guy who wrote that in Romans says that when Ananias came to him, he said, you know, turn from your sins be baptized, washing your sins away, calling on the name of the Lord. In order, in other words, he made calling on the name of the Lord all of those things. Hmm. Those things are calling on the name of the Lord, <laughs> rising up, uh, repenting of your sins, receiving baptism, washing your sins away, calling on the name of the Lord. Um, all of those things together are the act of calling on God's name. So they're not separated from each other. They're connected. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It, it, I could see why that is a very powerful verse. You know, honestly, I, I knew you were going to do the wash, that your sins may be washed away. I didn't think you were—I never thought about the invoking the name of the Lord, though. That's, that's a great insight. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, well, anyway, I hear the music coming up. Yeah, so absolutely. Say, it's, it's, hey, thank you for sharing everything, Kenny. Uh, this is great. All right. Uh, we. Yeah, I, I think uh, the connection's... Okay. So, anyway, that's Kenny Burchard. By the way, uh, check his, his blog out. It is KennyBurchard.com. Thank you so much for listening. And coming I think up next, we, I might have lost you, Gary. Talk with uh, the Terry and Jesse show. And God willing, we'll be back again next week to do this thing we call Hands on Apologetics. Bye-bye, everyone.